Hello, welcome back to the National Association for Primary Education podcast. My name is Mark Taylor. I'm the Vice Chair of NAEP. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Now, back in March 21, we had our annual conference entitled Towards a Balanced and Broadly Based Curriculum. Now, this comprised of Dr. Tony Hugh giving our annual Schiller lecture, but also was then supported by four separate presentations given by people in education talking about how this concept worked in their schools and within their experience. Now, you can listen to the lecture itself and also some Q&A that I did with Dr. Tony on episodes 65 and 66. But even following that, we had people wanted to find out even more information. So Dr. Tony has gone to St. Ebb's School to talk to Claire Wiles, one of these presenters, and also to Tina Farr, the head teacher there, to find out a little bit more about her presentation and exactly how this idea of curriculum and the design of the curriculum which they've been implementing has really worked. So I'll leave the full introduction to Dr. Tony Yude, but thank you so much for joining us and we really hope you enjoy this conversation. Good afternoon and welcome from St. Ebb's Primary School in Oxford. My name's Tony Yude and I'm joined by Tina Farr, who is the head teacher here, and by Claire Wiles, who's the deputy head teacher. And we'll do a, a brief introduction of who we are in a second. But just to give a little bit of background, the um, National Association for Primary Education held a conference on March the 6th, and I gave the Christian Schiller lecture, which was about why a balanced and broadly based curriculum matters, uh, particularly for young children and those from disadvantaged backgrounds. And one of the conference workshops was led by Claire from St Ebbs, which was called As Rich in Humanity as in Knowledge. And we had a request after the conference whether we could have some further conversations about what had happened at particular schools. And I thought that St Ebbs would be a particularly interesting one to uh, discuss this. And so I asked whether uh, Tina and Claire would be able to um, join for this conversation. And this is the result. So perhaps I can just ask you first, Tina, and then um, you, Claire, just to introduce yourself very briefly and maybe just to say something about the context of the school, you know, the size, the location, the demographics and, and any other factors that you think it would be useful for listeners to know. Thank you, Tony. My name's Tina Farr. I'm the head teacher here. I've been here now for three years and the curriculum that we've developed, I had some experience in my last school at Carswell where I was for six years um, in working in this kind of way, which was a really useful starting point. I'm going to let Claire talk to you more about the context of the school and why this approach was so suited. So I'm Claire Wiles and um, I'm deputy here at St Ebbs. I've been here for many, many years, I'll leave it at that. Um, but I know the school obviously very well in the community. We were a two-form entry school, so we've got 322 on roll at the moment. And it is a hugely rich and diverse catchment area. Um, and it seems to become more so with every passing year. At present, we're around sort of national averages for people premium children, um, but we have much higher than average um, levels of children coming to us with English as additional language. So in some classes, that's more than half of the of the children. We feel that in our school where we're located in Oxford, we've got a wealth of resources both within our immediate community and in Oxford City as a whole. Um, so we're really committed to um, making the most of that in terms of where we took our curriculum. Um, and as Tony said, um, we were particularly interested in how our curriculum can meet the needs of all of our children. 
with our pupil premium children in mind. Thank you very much. So uh, what we're basically going to do is have a fairly free-flowing conversation. So we may interrupt each other a bit or I may um, ask the uh, occasional question, uh, but I hope that uh, most of it will come from uh, Tina and Claire. Um, But I'll sort of gradually take through something about what the curriculum looks like how the process of devising that and implementing that took place, some of the difficulties, and then maybe just towards the end, a few words of advice for anybody who would, is thinking of doing something similar. So um, to start the main bit off, you, you've revised your curriculum very significantly in the last two or three years. Could you first just say what the rationale for this was and then go on on to say what you were hoping to achieve and then maybe some indication of the time scale when you started and the length of time in preparation and planning on the changes and then we'll come on to the process a bit later. Great. Um, So as Tina said, she came to our school in 2018 and at that point I think the staff, the governors and the children actually, we'd all identified that Um, we wanted to take a really good look at the curriculum and we felt there was a lot of potential to do to do more and to build on some of the good work we already had Um, and as I mentioned earlier I think we could see that the the community and our location was offering an awful lot and we weren't necessarily um, making the most out of that. Can I just press you a little bit on that point so what was it about the previous curriculum that you felt a bit dissatisfied with or that you weren't quite getting at it are you able to to say that yeah I think we had you know we had a really creative um, group of teachers who were very good at bringing elements of the curriculum to life and we'd have sort of fantastic um, themed days the sorts of things you see happening really well in lots of primary schools but we still felt that the children's experience as a whole wasn't coherent enough and although a lot of the time it was it was high quality, it wasn't necessarily sticking, the kind of knowledge the children had. They had sort of these memories, these standout memories, but it wasn't building into a kind of schema of understanding. Um, And you couldn't track through, particularly with the foundation subjects. We didn't feel we were being robust enough building skills over time. Yeah, that's, that's great, thanks. So do you want to do you want to go on to something just about the time scale and, uh, you know, a little bit about that? Yeah, so as Claire said, I started in September 2018 and as my second headship had thought that I would go a little bit slower than perhaps I had in my first one and try and understand the context of the school a little bit more. I think that you, you do once you've had some experience as, of a head. But there was quite a lot of drive from the staff team to go ahead and make changes. Everybody seemed really up for changes. And as I say, in my previous school, I'd worked closely with Dr Deborah Kidd on dilemma-led learning um, and a subsequent book, A Curriculum of Hope. And, but I think it's fair to say that we dabbled with it and I'd become increasingly passionate about it. So this was a huge opportunity, really, to go from the start with that knowledge that I'd built up and actually create something with Deborah. So I quite literally sent her a message and say, would you like to do this with us? And luckily she responded, yes. So it it was a, a very, we took a very agile approach to the development at first, I think, because she hadn't worked as closely with the school in the way that I was asking her to. I hadn't written a curriculum from scratch. 
Um, so we just made a start really and we learnt as we went along. So I think a lot of people won't be at all familiar with the, the phrase or the, the idea of dilemma-led um, learning. Could you say something about that and then perhaps both of you move into sort of describing in broad terms the main fi- features of what the curriculum sort of looks like now? I know that's difficult, you know, <laughs> a spoken conversation, but just give us a picture of what might be a bit distinctive about it as opposed to, um, you know, before or, or what one might expect to see in, in many other primary schools. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to do that. And I think the idea, the dilemma will hopefully come out by describing this in, in the broader terms. So um, we know there's been a lot of debate on Twitter around whether you go for knowledge-rich curriculum or whether you go for a more skills-based curriculum. And we were determined at the outset to do both. But not only that, we, we wanted to build a curriculum that was really rich in humanity and that had the story of humankind kind of at, at its heart. And there are lots of reasons for that, which we'll, I'll, I'll sort of touch on in a moment. Um, so for us, we wanted to um, structure our curriculum around um, story, human story. So we started with this idea, with Deborah's support, of using people, places, problems and possibilities as a kind of framework. So we always begin with a person um, and we think about how that person is going to engage and interest the children. And then we anchor them in a place and obviously that gives rise to lots of opportunities for historical context, geographical context. Um, But then the dilemma part is when that person or those people are in some sort of they encounter some sort of difficulty so you build in some kind of twist and it's at that point that hopefully you get the real engagement and the emotional kind of engagement from the children because they're already invested in the story of that person and they want to know what 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 is the difficulty they're encountering Um, can i just interrupt you for a second can you just give us maybe a couple of brief very brief examples of what you mean by uh, a you know, a, a historical or, or a, a cultural figure who's encountered a dilemma, just so that people have a bit of understanding of what you mean by that. So the an easy one to explain, I think, which you may have done in the presentation, is the water one in yeah. in year two. So that one start the inquiry question, which is a really key part of this, starts with is water the most precious thing on the planet? And the children begin with a child the same age as them in Kenya who is struggling to have enough water per day around seven litres so they begin to learn about how much water they have per day and through understanding her dilemma and how different organisations have helped to solve that problem so that's where the hope element comes in because this this kind of curriculum could be perceived as quite um, hopeless in some ways but it's far from it I think it's important that children doing do engage with those issues with um, people that they can identify with but then they bring it back to their own school and they have a, a moral debate really about whether we should try and save water even though at the moment we don't need to and they look at ways that we can introduce water saving activities around the school so that they have they can see direct impact a tangible impact of their work. Um, I've got another example here I've got a recount from a teacher that I'd like to read if that's okay Tony so this is one of our most recent projects do humans need plants to survive and thrive 
and um, this this stemmed from the there was a gap in the science provision in year three four so I've got a teacher in year three four who's very passionate about science and we needed to do a lot around plants and then in coming up with the inquiry question we ended up starting with the um, studying the Mayans which I think doesn't get studies as much as perhaps it should or could I don't know why but it turns out that it's incredibly interesting so if I can just read you what happened because the teacher did the dilemma and we use a lot of adults going into role in our school so she went into role as Tekanuman one of the last rulers of the Mayan empire he was desperate and angry about the collapse of the empire and looking for reasons during the session he revealed there'd been a long drought and the crops had failed he also said the people were abandoning the cities and the traders had stopped passing through the town he spoke about the temples and how they needed to burn the trees to make building materials. He spoke to his spirit guide and Shak, the god of rain. So this is the year 3-4 teacher in role as one of the last rulers of the Mayan empire. And the children would be questioning her, as you'd expect from... I mean, there's nothing new about teacher in role, but there's something special about how this works with making connections in knowledge. And this happened. At the end of the day, a child approached me and said, I think if he'd prayed better, it wouldn't have happened. I said that Tekanuman might have believed that because the Maya believed in many gods. I asked the child if he thought it was the reason the rains had stopped. He said he didn't believe in the same gods, but maybe it was because the ruler had played, prayed to the wrong gods. Maybe if he'd prayed to Allah, it would have been better. I asked again if he thought that was the reason it had stopped raining. He said, you know last term with the water cycle. Do you remember about evaporation, how the water evaporates and makes the clouds? That's how you get rain. I said I did remember and asked him... Knowing that, what did he now think about the rain? He pondered for a while and said, maybe for some reason there just weren't any clouds anymore. Maybe chopping down the trees had something to do with that. And then the teacher then, she put his ideas in a speech bubble on the wall and said it was really interesting how he was making connections in his learning. And next day she did a whole activity with the children where they used pieces of string to, co to connect different bits of knowledge. And I think this is some of the real power we're seeing in this curriculum with the impact it has on children's ability to do that and the really interesting thing about this story is the child in question struggles to get his ideas on paper and could easily in different circumstances be pigeonholed as lower ability and you can hear there's nothing lower ability about that response and that's something that is really exciting for us to to think that children that might otherwise be sidelined if they if they couldn't get their ideas down can actually develop really strong knowledge and curiosity about the minds. No, if, if if I can just comment on that, I I think it's a it's a really powerful and interesting vignette there, and Claire referred to the foundation subjects earlier, and I think listeners can easily see an element of history there, some geography, some religious religious education, some issues to do with sustainability, and a whole range of those different things. Let me just be devil's advocate for just a second because we all know there's a great deal of um, emphasis at the moment from the government and from Ofsted on, on literacy and numeracy so where where does that sort of fit in and how would one answer the question that yeah really these are all lovely things to learn but surely young children basically what they need to learn is to is to read and write and do their sums. I'm not saying I agree with that, but I am just uh, arguing devil's advocate a bit. 
Well, I think we probably both want to jump in here. I think <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll hold you back. So if I, I, I just, I'll continue just because of thinking about that particular child who we yeah. both obviously know. And my, my immediate response to that would be is that he now has something to write about, whereas previously we were struggling to get him to write. And he, he'd come up with those connections himself. He, it was stored in his head first. And we all know that, I mean, I've been a big fan of Pi Corbett's Talk for Writing. I know Claire has for a long time. And we have to talk ideas before we can get them written down. And he's able to write those ideas down because he's had them and he's made those connections. So that would be my, my first response to that. Yeah, I think with, with my maths lead hat on, um, I think we were really clear and conscious from the start that this wasn't going to be the old school approach to topic where you just drag everything in kicking and screaming and make it make it work and I think with mathematics in particular we already had we put a lot of work into our pedagogy for maths and the structure and how we teach it and actually we weren't about to sort of toss that to one side so on the whole maths teaching remains discreet and we teach that in the way we know works best for maths. Where, for example, when um, Tina touched on the Year 2 project, that was a great opportunity to put, you know, to really give children the concept of what a litre is. Um, so there was lots and lots of mathematical opportunities within that, but it's only done when that is the case, otherwise maths is kept separate. But as Tina said, for, for us and for the children that we're very conscious of in terms of their EAL um, and low literacy levels coming into school, using drama and putting children into the heart of a story has just freed up so much more language. And in terms of talk time within the classroom, that's something we're trying to monitor, but our feeling and the sort of... Um, the stories that are coming back to us are leading us to believe that it is having an impact on children's speaking, listening skills, and the knock-on effect of that is their writing is getting better and better. Yeah. I won't go on too long, but one theme that's been going through my mind while you've been talking is, and you were saying it explicitly, is this idea about connecting between different aspects of experience and trying to make connections with... Um, with the children's own lives in the way that the child that you were talking about, Tina, was making the link between the religious beliefs of the Mayans and then his own religious beliefs in a, in a, in a fascinating way. Th no, thank, thanks ever so much. So maybe we can, can move on and perhaps just sort of describe the journey a bit of how you planned the changes um, how it relates to the national curriculum, if you want to say anything about that. You mentioned the external support, perhaps say a bit more about that, and the role of senior leadership and governors. Um, and then we'll maybe come back in a minute just to whether it's been affected by things like changes to the inspection framework and the, and the, the last year or so with the pandemic. So I think Claire described in her presentation that she did to Nate that um, we, when we started working with Deborah, so it, all of these planning sessions have involved Claire and I, and that's something that was accidental. We, we decided the day before that we'd both be involved because we wanted to see what, and I'm so glad we did that because we, we needed to know what this process was from the outset and to be able to shape it. But what's come out of that is we've now pledged to be involved in every planning session, not because we're control freaks, but in, in lots of ways, it help, what, it, what it does is it helps us to stick to the purpose of our curriculum. Because for so many years, we were 
um, like Claire was talking about topic webs and things, where the, the connections weren't always obvious, they were sometimes quite tenuous. Um, so it was very easy for teachers when they're planning, and for us as teachers who went through planning like that, to get drawn into that kind of, oh, we could do this, or we could do that, or we could make that, or we could cook this, we could dress up as this. And we, one of the things that Deborah did really well with us was chaired those meetings in a way that drew us back to the structure that we'd created, to the five pillars that we'd, we'd put underneath, which Claire talked about in the presentation. So having that structure was, was really important. But I think the other thing that we, we were quite lucky in that we had our last Ofsted inspection in November 2018. And we, um, as part of that inspection, we did talk to the inspector about our intentions. He was very excited by what we were describing. And as he walked out the door, he said to us, you've got four years. He said, let this, let this happen, you know, really go for it. You've got time to make your mistakes. And when we get on to thinking about advice for any schools doing this, I would say try and do it at the, the beginning of a cycle because it's a big job. It's much easier to spend £6,000 and buy a curriculum off the shelf. This has given us sleepless nights, but it's been so worth it when you start to see the impact like we've, like we've got. Um, and another key thing about the way that we started, as I said, it was quite organic. And one of the things that we said to our teachers was, imagine you've got no barriers, you've got no term times, you've got no timetable, you've got no national curriculum. And that's not out of disrespect to the national curriculum. What we didn't want to do was be constrained by what was in there in our thinking. So we ended up going through a true creative process where we just said, what would happen if? What if we thought like this? And what we ended up with was were projects that we could quite easily link back to the national curriculum, but with extra knowledge and concepts in that we might not have considered had we just gone from there. Uh, so there's many brilliant things in the national curriculum. And like I say, I'm not, I'm not slating that at all, but I think it was important that we put those perceived restraints to one side. And I find quite often as a head teacher, people will say to me, particularly people in education, they'll say, well, obviously your hands are tied, you've got a national curriculum, you can't really do much creative. And that's so not true. I think that's a really lazy response. The national curriculum is, the purpose of it is really clear. We don't disagree with any of the purpose of any of the subjects. In fact, we've used quite a lot of those to shape our curriculum intent. Um, you've just got to be brave and take away a lot of the perceived restrictions that we have in education, because we should be the most creative people out there. And that was our experience of this. Do you want to say anything else about the, 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 the process, Claire? I mean, perhaps just as a prompt of involvement of governors and, and, and staff, uh, uh, you know, because my guess is that any group of staff, there are going to be some who are huge enthusiasts and other people who are going to be a bit more reticent. And um... Yeah, just to, to build on what Tina was saying about our joining the um the planning sessions i think the other thing that was just so sort of invigorating about that in a way is that we were all starting it together from from the same point um and it was just fantastic to see the different skills and you know bits of interest mm. and knowledge that some of our staff had that we we'd never have necessarily unpicked that or unearthed that and actually for our credibility to be able to be in those planning sessions go or oh, actually and, and feel like you've got something to contribute i think it 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 meant that we felt like we were all equally invested in it. Um, and it was also that idea we've 
Tina and I have talked about it being like a form of upfront monitoring. So instead of setting people off going, we're going to do something completely different, off you go, hoping that, that they're going to deliver what we had in our heads, we actually got to sit together and really, where we could feel maybe it was veering off course a little bit, we were able to kind of re-agree what, what is it that we're, we're trying to do here. So it felt like everyone left that room with a really clear understanding of what we'd all committed to doing. That said, um, the other thing we did do throughout is we put in a huge amount of training, staff, um, staff meeting time in particular. So at every point we've come back together and said, okay, how did that go? What worked well? What didn't? Where we felt maybe people weren't feeling as confident to use the dramatic devices, for example, we got Deborah back in and she did a whole day's sort of workshops with teachers. So we've tried to constantly keep the dialogue going um, and really encourage staff to be honest. And I think that has, that has helped because at every point when something has come back, we've been able to respond by giving it time, by unpicking actually what is behind this. Is it to do with confidence? Is it that we've just veered off the path a little bit? Um, and just to come back to governors, you know, we were really fortunate with our governors. Um, I think they too um, were ready for us to take on the challenge of doing something new with the curriculum. They attended um, a presentation given by Deborah right at the beginning, which was a really good kind of uh, grounding, if you like, as to why we're doing what we're doing, what we're here for. Um, so I think that common purpose from the beginning was really helpful. Mm. And parents attended that as well, didn't they? Yeah, uh, yeah that was really important. And if I, I can just add to that as well, with regard to Ofsted, I mean, the, we would, I think we would have done this curriculum anyway, and it did coincide with some really welcome changes to the Ofsted framework. Um, and again, I think the, the worst thing that schools can do is, is do something because they think that's what Ofsted wants to see. And I think Ofsted themselves have been really clear that you should run a school for your community, to serve your community. And you know that that's what we're doing and i think you're on a you're on a really difficult road if you're trying to second guess what an inspector that you might see in three years or four years might want to see um and we know the reasons why that's come about i won't that's not what this is about today i won't go into that but i think we've got such a golden opportunity here with the the new the new ofsted framework to be much freer with our approach and much clearer about how it links to our school community no, thanks very much. Uh, just, just one thing that maybe we could just touch on very briefly, um, which people who didn't hear the presentation at the conference won't know, is um, something about the sort of chunks of time, so to speak. I mean, when one's taking one of these stories, is that um, three weeks' worth? Is it a half a term's worth? And does it sort of lead to something at the... At the end, is there something which the children and the teachers are sort of building up to? Shall I start with saying something about the, t the time frame? So as Tina said, when we worked with the teachers, we, we very much wanted to be led by how much we wanted, you know, what, what was the content we wanted to get in and, and pacing it with how much learning we felt there was the capacity for rather than going, well, there's a half term there. So clearly that's six weeks worth. Um, so we have the projects um, vary. Some are sort of three to four weeks. 
most go to six to seven weeks um, but again each time we evaluate a project we we can adapt that depending on the kind of response of the children um, and the the story we always anchor a story in the beginning of a project um, and it might be that that just lends its the context and actually the learning goes off from there and they leave that story to one side to, to a certain extent and other times another story might come out a little bit later that that reinvigorates the project or that takes it in a slightly different direction so it can it can vary depending on what the what what direction the project's going in and then um they build up to what we call learning exhibitions at the end so we've used the work of ron berger um and his his work around the hierarchy of audience and giving children a purpose for producing beautiful work, for producing their best quality work. And that's been a big shift, I think, culturally for the school, hasn't it? The, well, St Ebbs had previously done quite traditional sharing with parents through sharing assemblies where the parents would come in and the children would hold up their work and, and say what they'd been doing. But without fail, those were always made specifically for the sharing assembly. They weren't a natural outcome of what the children were doing. So in effect, they stopped what they were learning to produce something for sharing assembly, which felt to us like not the best use of, of time. Now, the learning exhibitions have been something that um, people were initially very excited about, but they did turn out to be one of our biggest challenges because we could we could feel people running out of steam a little bit and saying, well... Actually, what we'll do is we'll just have the parents in and we'll show them what we've been doing. So we'll say, well, that's that's a bit like a sharing assembly, isn't it? That's where we're moving on from. So what we did at that stage was we led a, a staff, it was more of a staff discussion session than a, and a training session. But we said to the teachers, the learning exhibitions that have gone well, and by learning exhibition, I mean inviting parents and wider members of the community in who are capable of critiquing the work that's been produced and the experts that have helped the children along the way. Um, what went well and the teachers really came alive when they were forced to kind of nail down what the benefits had been for the children and for them and I think at that point they realised that something they were sort of perceiving as quite a lot of extra work was something that should just organically happen but you have to plan for it from the beginning you have to have that exhibition in mind and involve the children and shape the journey with them which of course is a very different approach to you deciding what they're going to learn all of the time and telling them it and then hoping that they've got it. So it is a much more organic process. And we found after that meeting, we also went back to the Ron Berger research um, with the hierarchy of audience and the whole thing about producing something that is of service to the world rather than just to please your teacher. We've got lots of children here who produce work to please their teacher. That's not the that's not the issue, but we want them to produce it because they know it's important. And our vision is producing wise nurturing wise compassionate citizens with the power to make a difference and if they know that their piece of writing needs to be really good because it's going up on display and they're going to have to persuade their parents to change a habit um, then they need to make sure that all those persuasive skills are in there they need to know make sure that it's backed up by the knowledge so they sound like they know what they're talking about and once teachers started seeing that I think they could see that it was worth it. And just as a small point did those sort of I'm not sure what you called them but those if you like external experts, whether mm. they might be parents or someone who's an archaeologist or something, when they, I'm sure they made um, constructive remarks, and 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 I wondered if they made constructive criticisms and how that was responded to by the teachers and and, and by the children. Um, it may not have happened, but I I don't know. I just wondered. I don't think that's happened yet. I think the pandemic put put paid to our live learning exhibitions right, that we yeah, had to yeah. move to using videos and photos and things which were a reasonable substitute but 
we hadn't actually really, because the teachers were still developing their confidence in holding them, I think that's a little bit further down the line, but that's something that we would actively ask those experts to come and do. Um, because, of course, one of the things that Ron Berger says is that, you know, parents are a great audience, but they're not often that critical um, <laughs> of their children's yeah. work. And But we, we teach the children a lot about feedback and the importance of the, the learning journey and expecting and embracing mistakes rather than trying to avoid them. Um, so I think that will be a, a natural progression for us, hopefully, once we can start having people back in. No, I mean, I, I would, would very much agree with that. I mean, and, and uh, just to give a brief comment from myself, I think quite often we infantilise children and we don't mm. have... Everyone talks about having high expectations, but we don't actually have high enough expectations no. of children. And actually, when someone who's a professional chef or a plumber or a university <coughs> academic comes in and says, yeah, that's all, all very well, but actually you need to recognise that as well, then I think there's a real respect for that, that learning process. Um, so you mentioned very briefly the, the, the pandemic, and you might want to say something else about that, it doesn't matter. Um, but I'd be interested just to know what some of the difficulties are that you've encountered, and you've hinted at a couple of them, and, and how you've tried to overcome these. And I just say that from the point of view that quite often when I read about schools redoing curriculum it all sounds a bit perfect and a bit sweet and my experience as a head teacher was that things never went quite as smoothly as one had hoped and it's always useful I think to know what some of the yeah what some of the difficulties were and and um, yeah and what you did in to to address those um I think in fairness we did we've lost a bit of the momentum that we built up um around the curriculum and um, with the best of efforts it was quite hard to continue doing the, pro the project work in the way we'd want to um, particularly during lockdowns um, but I think looking at what we would want for our children in terms of a recovery curriculum we sort of remain convinced that the curriculum that we've developed is the recovery curriculum that we want to provide for the children it's about them being excited about their learning again about them feeling like what they're learning is relevant um, I think that's become quite important around the pandemic, that this is real stuff that, that matters. And I think they, they can see that what we're trying to do with the project learning is is authentic. And I think that's, that's really important. Um, the other thing we've noticed is, obviously, um, I think geography, history are fairly obvious vehicles for us with the projects. But more and more, we're finding that teachers are actually using PSHCE as a driver for a lot of the projects and again post pandemic I think that's been really useful because it's about making connections about um, how we interact <coughs> with each other how we understand each other as a community so that that all feels like it's just as relevant if not more so now than it was pre-pandemic I suppose that the, the where there's a bit of conflict for us is you know you are thinking there's some children for whom have lost a lot of core learning time um, and we have sort of discussed with our staff a lot what are the things that we just can't drop so for example your reading your math skills your writing you know we do need to put the time into that um, but part of going down this route of the project work is that instead of breaking up the day into um, all the different subjects you have got more capacity in some respects to say teach your discrete mathematics or your spelling as a discrete lesson and that's really important but then there is big chunks of time left to dedicate to the project work 
Yeah, and I think I'd add to that to say that, you know, we are always, Claire and I are naturally very optimistic and, and hopeful, and there's been many benefits as well for us in our curriculum. So the project I was describing earlier, Do Humans Need Plants to Survive and Thrive?, that really came directly from, you know, all of our observations of the extra time we spent in nature, particularly during the first lockdown with that beautiful spring last year. Um, and connection actually became one of our core values over the course of the pandemic. So it really did help us to work out what was important once all the noise of external accountability measures were taken away and we could actually look at what was really important in our school. Uh, another project that emerged from the pandemic was a year six one, what is the best way to lead? Now that ended up starting um, with the um, Benin Empire, but the children learned a lot, well they brought a lot to us about different leaders that they'd observed across the world during the pandemic and the different approaches they'd taken to, to managing it in their country. So they'd all been thinking about these things and so we had some very natural and easy discussions with the children from their own observations. So I think a couple of really powerful projects have emerged as a, as a bonus. We also found that um, as leaders during the pandemic, during lockdown, we had more time on our hands because we had so few children in school and teachers were managing the children at home on the on Zoom or um, Google Classrooms. So that really enabled Claire and I to hone in on the knowledge aspect of it, which was, that was something that I think if we were going to say, is there anything we'd do differently, it would be that we would have brought the knowledge organisers in earlier and been much clearer about what's the exact knowledge in each subject that's distinct for each subject. So it's Claire's going to talk probably about credibility soon but so it's got that credibility so it's not got that topicy feel of you know we're just doing topic this afternoon I do like the teachers to say we're we're learning history this afternoon it's linked to our project but this lesson is about history and the skills that you develop did you want to say something about credibility yeah, I mean, yeah, yes. being given that prompt <laughs> so I um, didn't want to steal your thunder there are you <laughs> No, it seems that, you know, we, we, we could have, when we set out on this journey, we could have started from knowledge and the national curriculum and built the projects that way around, but we chose not to. We chose to go from the passions of the teachers and what they observed that the children wanted to do. And we sort of kept the national curriculum tucked under, it was tucked under my chair, actually, quite unceremoniously, <laughs> and occasionally pulled out. Um, but that has meant we're now left with that feeling that actually we need this to be um, credible and we need it to be robust. So what we've got to do is show that actually we are covering the national curriculum objectives and some. Um, so we're in the process of working with um, subject coordinators to really um, sort of scrutinise the projects from reception to year six, look at where their particular discipline is being taught, pull it out, make sure that there is progression within that, um, and really identify what's the extra bits of knowledge and understanding that we've chosen to include and be really clear as to why they've made the cut really I guess um, not just because they're of interest to the children but how do they build into this wider schema so it's quite a big piece of work but I feel like it's the really important kind of next step for us so that we can feel confident that there aren't gaps and children aren't just getting sort of discrete bits of knowledge that are not actually um, progressing into something bigger, a bigger understanding. And that just reminds me, Tony, you mentioned earlier about governors and their, their challenge and support. And, you know, we do have a really challenging and knowledgeable and brilliant governing body, I have to say, who are behind us on this. But something that they're really passionate and we're really passionate about is not being forced into that polarisation of a progressive or a traditionalist school. And um, 
you know, I, I go on Twitter sometimes, not not very often, but I'm always dismayed to feel to hear people just dismissing someone else's ideas as, oh, that's too progressive. And again, we want to confound that. We want to say that uh, sometimes you need a wholly traditional approach to teaching certain bits of knowledge because that's what it lends itself to. And yes, maybe everybody's facing the front with the feet on the floor and they're practising something. And another time, all the tables can be pushed back and we're we're interacting with Tekken Iman and his, his drought problem. Um, so, you know, that you can really do both. So we're determined to confound that idea. And as Claire said, if we've, if we've got the, which we nearly have now, if we've got those really robust knowledge progression documents, we've got knowledge organisers, but it doesn't restrict it just to learning facts. It's about all the other things we've been talking about as well. But we do want those elements of it too. Yeah, I mean, if, if I can just make a, a, a couple of comments on what you've both been saying for the last five or ten minutes. And I mean, we haven't particularly pre-prepared this conversation um, but there's something about knowledge that I'm very interested in that you know we tend to conflate that with facts and I think there are different types of mm, knowledge in mm. terms of ways of working of observation and interpretation which are very much linked to the humanities which is a particular interest of mine and the other one you've talked about knowledge and skills but I think there's also an issue to do with concepts which is quite complicated for very young children, but I think particularly as children move more into key stage two, I mean, ideas such as causation and, you know, and, and you know, does something necessarily happen because that happened and no one... I, I won't go on, but um, I, I, it just struck me that there were... Though, you know, we, we tend to come up with... It's picking up your point, Tina Roo. We come, tend to come up with some very simplistic notions sometimes. Mm. And actually learning is enormously complicated, which isn't just an issue of skills or knowledge it's, mm. uh, or indeed values and ethics. It's, it's a whole mixture of those things. Sorry, Claire, you look as if you were about to uh, no, say just, something. No, just reflecting on that, because actually that, that in some ways was the hardest bit of our planning um, was actually to pin down the knowledge and we found the process of creating these knowledge organisers was it, it was harder than we were expecting but it was also really good because that was about actually what's the declarative knowledge so how and a part of it was about communicating with parents so they knew what we were covering and what they could you know perhaps having discussions with their children about at home um, but yeah the process of doing that with staff has been a really good one because it has made clear okay this is the declarative bit of the knowledge but we know that there's also the knowledge of how and as you say the sort of broader concept so it's yeah. um, quite helpful to kind of pick that apart a little bit and then and then bring it back together again yeah yeah, no. yeah definitely yeah. and so, some other other bits have emerged that we weren't expecting as well so we've got this was in Claire's presentation I think but um, one of our parents is a professor of ancient history at the university and something that he picked up from the learning exhibition to do with the Stone Age for year three was their willingness, the seven and eight year olds' willingness to engage with epistemic uncertainty. And one of the things that he said is he has a lot of trouble trying to get his, his undergraduates to engage with that because, of course, they're the result of a school system which has been about right and wrong. And For the very few members of our audience who aren't absolutely clear what epistemic uncertainty <laughs> is, could you could you describe it in a sentence? Well, neither were we to start with. <laughs> so, um, the example that Peter gave was that the children were showing um, showing their parents around cave paintings, and they were able to say they they'd been taught in such a way by their teacher, who was very passionate about this period of history, that they couldn't be certain what the cave paintings were predicting, what what they were showing, and that that was okay. And they were very knowledgeably saying, "Oh, we think this could be a family having their supper. We think they could be waiting to stalk. We're not sure. We can't be certain." 
and unable to sort of justify why they'd come to those conclusions. But they were okay with being uncertain. And now we're 15 months into a pandemic. I think we've all learned that we need to be okay with being uncertain. And there's going to be more of these kind of situations on the horizon. So again, this kind of curriculum really does lend itself to that, again, not everything is right or wrong. And something that I'm really driven by is helping to nurture young people that don't just shut somebody down that they disagree with, that are interested, um, and sort of say, well, that's an interesting opinion. I totally disagree with what you're saying, but tell me why you think yeah. that. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, again, a personal comment. I think that's, that's enormously important. And I think, for, particularly for very young children, and I'm there I'm thinking about sort of five or six year olds they very often want to think in quite binary ways that you know they want to know is this right or wrong and actually f- from an early age to uh, engage them in well there are some things where we know that it's right and wrong and then there's other things where none of us really know and I, think, okay. I was just going to add one more thing to that just the idea that, that that sort of concept of epistemic uncertainty we hadn't consciously planned that in and it mm. wouldn't have necessarily occurred to us had had that particular father not made that observation but as we go along I think part of that being again in the planning sessions you're seeing those echoes forward and back and thinking oh actually when they're in year three they sort of encountered this idea of epistemic uncertainty and actually then when they go into year six they do a project around um, Irvine and Everest and actually that gives them another opportunity to kind of engage with that concept so it's Mm -hmm. really it's really exciting seeing those kind of come bubble up to the surface, if you like, and trying to capture them. Thanks. So just in the last three or four minutes, um, is there anything you want to say about the aspects of the changes about which you're most pleased? I think you've probably said quite a bit about that, but you might want to pick out one or two. Um, Or areas that you think still need to address. I think you've probably sort of covered it, but I just wondered whether there was sort of really a chance just to pick out you know, one or two sentences about what's been really good or what are the things that we really need to work at that you haven't mentioned. We're seeing these, we're calling them sort of impact stories if you like, but some of the things we've shared during this discussion. So having members of staff and parents bring to us and children um, little stories that really exemplify the impact of the curriculum have been really heartening and really um, encouraging and we're trying to sort of capture those and just record them as soon as they come our way and they're, pic- they're building a really good picture and I guess one of the challenges for us is we, we know what we want to achieve with the curriculum but it's to measure the sorts of things we're looking for like engagement um, is, is quite a difficult thing so we've invested in a few different um, sort of metrics like the past survey and the Leuven scale of engagement so we're trying to collect some more measurable data but that alongside um, the sort of impact stories we're hoping will keep us going in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. And um, one of the things I've most recently been pleased with is um, I think, you know, most of us that work in education wouldn't be surprised to hear that a lot of teachers are quite perfectionist in their their own work. And um, actually what's happened through this process, I was talking to a teacher the other day and, and he said that he's, he's come to the conclusion with these projects that they evolve so much when you actually start to deliver them with the children that 
actually it's okay to start with a project that's like they talk about in the tech industry it's a minimal viable product you know it, it's good it's solid but they're so rich these projects that you can't possibly make them perfect in a three-hour training session you have to go in with the willingness to be able to learn as you go along so in the what's the best way to lead they went to the pit rivers museum but they've identified that was too late on in the project they're going to do that closer to the beginning the pit rivers have learned from what our children brought to them on how they're going to present back so it's turned us into much more of a learning community which which links back to our, our vision and our core values um but again you know if you buy something off the shelf it, it's set in stone there's not much hope for it to be able to evolve in terms of just you know di different knowledge and what he said was these projects will keep evolving and the day that we you know in a couple of years time if we find that the project's not evolving anymore it's probably time to shelve it and start again but that we would give ourselves a year to think about a new project rather than trying to cram the thinking into to three hours so yeah. that alongside um i've definitely found from being involved in all of these planning sessions that i'm much more curious about the world than i ever had been i think because i've been so bogged down in running a school and trying to you know meet all those metrics and respond to those external accountability measures um because we've just found out so much and the teachers have had to develop their subject knowledge because you can't deliver projects with great big inquiry questions like this without knowing something but you always know more by the end um, you can't know it all in the beginning. No, I mean, I, lo I love that notion of, of um, that's behind what you're saying, that actually it's not just the children who are learning, but actually it's the, it, it's the teachers, it's the parents, and in, indeed it's, it, it's yourselves, it's mm. everybody. Uh, and I think that's, a, that, that's a, a very nice area. And, of course, implicit again in what you say is that one plans, but one plans flexibly. Mm. And I think the problem with some of those off-the-shelf curriculums is you know that they are inherently a bit inflexible and not related to the context but i should be quiet um <laughs> never taken my own advice on that uh, finally um maybe just just a couple each perhaps i mean or a bit more if you want but any words of advice for those who are thinking of embarking on on a similar journey yeah. i would time I think you just you do need to give an awful lot of time to for, for the planning um, and for coming back together as a staff team and really celebrating what's going well so we keep constantly reminding people why we're doing what we're doing um, and, and and enjoying that but at the same time also kind of troubleshooting as you go along and I, I think that whole thing that's emerged about it being if you can give it the time to allow it to be organic and learn as you go along is 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 really useful and i think you've got to accept from the beginning that this will never be finished this is this is like the true definition of mastery you know you there will always be more to learn there will always be better ways of doing it and for me it's the epitome of how how schools should be operating so you know I think you, you just couldn't do this quickly. You can't, we couldn't go into a school and talk about this and then they could implement it the next day. You, you've really got to be willing to engage with that learning process. And I think what I said earlier about don't be forced into describing yourself as a progressive school just because you're thinking in this way. You know, this is underpinned by really rigorous planning and thinking tools. It's just that it is open to change and flexibility as we go along. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm just going to end with two comments. Um, one of which I started off by talking about the balanced and broadly based curriculum, which of course is um, one of the things that Ofsted is now looking at. And it's ever so easy to sort of come up with these 
phrases like that but actually it's when I think when one gets into conversations like that we've been having for the last three quarters of an hour that one really begins to see what it what it actually means and so I think I'm really grateful for that and the other one which I'm sure people didn't um won't have missed and and you Tina sort of said it almost in passing but I know it's not in passing about what you were hoping to achieve and you used the phrase of wise and compassionate citizens and I think it's a beautiful phrase and so thank you very much to those who've been listening um, we hope that you've found it an interesting conversation and that it may help you in your own journey uh, towards a a better balanced and more broadly based curriculum. Thanks, Tina. Thanks, Claire.